Today's podcast is brought to you by the new HBO series, Any Given Wednesday with Bill Simmons. The new show will feature intimate conversations with compelling guests from the world's pop culture, sports, entertainment, the arts, and technology. Any Given Wednesday with Bill Simmons will also include field segments and Simmons' signature commentary on current events. Make sure to watch Any Given Wednesday with Bill Simmons, premiering Wednesday, June 22nd at 10 p.m. on HBO. We're also brought to you by our new website, TheRinger.com, presented by Miller Lite. Go now and check out the latest in pop culture, sports, and tech at TheRinger.com. And last but not least, we wanted to mention Yahoo Sports. Yahoo Sports has been a leader in fantasy sports for nearly two decades, and it's great to see that they recently introduced Fair Play for Daily Fantasy. Yahoo is helping to level the playing field for sports fans with strict contest entry limits and veteran labels for highly experienced players so you know who you're playing against. Yahoo Sports is offering our listeners a special offer. Go to the Yahoo Fantasy app or visit yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy and use the promo code RINGER, R-I-N-G-E-R, with your next deposit to receive a one-time $50 deposit bonus that is earned over time as you play. First, plus, first-time depositors will receive a $10 credit to enter contests. So remember, that's promo code RINGER on Yahoo Sports Daily Fantasy. Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. I'm Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at TheRinger.com. Uh, today we're going to be doing an American League Central bonanza with uh, some talk about the White Sox and the Twins. And uh, the first guest on the line is a senior writer at Baseball Perspective Southside. It's Nick Schaefer. How are you doing, Nick? I'm great. I'm great. How are you doing, Michael? Thanks for having me. Uh, how am I doing? I'm not doing great, and I blame the White Sox, actually, because... Uh, word came out earlier today that the White Sox have designated Jimmy Rollins for assignment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the, the White Sox have been in the business of making their own fans sad for long enough, so it figures that they're reaching out to, to other fan bases. Um, Rollins was brought in sort of as a stopgap, like he was last year in front of Corey Seager um, for the White Sox. Uh, best prospect, Tim Anderson, is. Uh, they're trying to keep him at short for as long as possible and see if he can stick at the position. And and uh, unfortunately, Rollins' defense was immediately apparent it wasn't there. And, and then over the last month or so, his bat started to crater as well. And and uh, the White Sox are pretty desperate right now for any sort of boost they can get. So it's been a lot of transactions just even the last few days. Yeah, um, you know, I come from a place I started uh, writing about the Phillies, uh, you know, back in – you know, 2008, 2009, when Jimmy Rollins was like the you know, one of the stars of that team, and you know, he was he was like a collective dad to to my generation of Philly fans when I was younger. So you know, it's <laughs> it's disconcerting to look at a baseball landscape without him. And you know, I'm I guess it's I'm happy for you that that you got to experience uh, the joy that's even even old Jimmy Rollins, even if it was for only a couple of months. Yeah, I mean he's he's he obviously, or at least as far as we can tell from the outside, he seems like a fantastic guy. I'm sure the uh, the teammates they all loved him. It's just, uh, I guess this is just how it goes sometimes. I mean uh, he's uh, coming up on I think he's 37 now, and uh, unless he's willing to, I don't know, back up at second base or third or something like that, I just don't think he can handle short anymore. And then that kind of limits his options. I mean the White Sox aren't in a position to get rid of 
any major league caliber position players. So if the White Sox are dumping him, then it's it's not looking too good for him. So the the flip side of that is the guy that brought up Tim Anderson, uh, who's you know shortstop prospect. And the White Sox have had some success developing pitchers uh, recently. You know, Chris Sale, obviously, as good as they come in the past five years, and Carlos Rodon last year. But they've had a little bit of a draft developing position players. And, you know, Anderson, former first round pick, uh, could be the, the guy who breaks that streak. Yeah, it's been, it's actually been staggering how bad they've been with, with developing and at least retaining guys. I mean, Chris Young and Trace Thompson look like, you know, they have had decent careers or may have may have good careers, but uh, it really goes back to in terms of people they've held on to. I mean, you're talking about Joe Creedy and Aaron Rowan are sort of the last guys that they've drafted and developed and, and held on to, unless you count Cuban signees like Jose Abreu and Alexei Ramirez. So it's very interesting to see what he'll do. I mean, the athleticism is off the charts. He's a uh, burner, absolute uh, crazy fast speed. He's new to baseball, so even though he was uh, a junior college draft pick, he had been a basketball star in high school, and I don't think he started playing until uh, baseball at all until late in high school. So uh, he's been described as raw at every level. His, his approach, um, you know, his strikeout-to-walk ratio is always very poor. Uh, but his hands are, are – he has excellent bat speed as far as I understand it. And he's, for a quote-unquote raw prospect, he's performed uh, really well at every level despite how inexperienced he is for those levels. And after a really rough first month in AAA, he really turned it on and – um, I'm nervous. I'm nervous that they're rushing him. I, I, you know, they don't have a great track record as far as converting prospects into major league talent on the offensive side of the ball. So uh, fingers crossed, but uh, he could be an impact player if, if they give him, uh, if everything breaks right. Yeah, that that quote unquote like raw athlete is uh, the kind of prospect um, that just. I think this is just a matter of personal preference on my part, but I tr- I tend to shy away from those guys because if they you know you can get seduced by by the speed the strength like the the balance the you know body control all that stuff and it's still really hard to learn how to hit if you're coming to the game late you know learning the finer points of hitting at like you know 18 19 20 years old um and you know, it, when when it works, it works great. But you know, it's the yeah. when it doesn't, it's just a total disaster. And that's the difference between someone like Bubba Starling, um, and I guess Tim Anderson would now count as um, as an example of it working. And the the other thing is like guys who come come to the game late. Uh, you know, somebody um, like I guess Amir, Amir Gare might be. Uh, an example of this in the red system, guys who are multi-sport athletes, like it's a lot easier to learn how to pitch because it's it's proactive. It's not, um, you know, you're not reading spin or anything like that. You just got to throw the ball or it's hitting. There's, it's a lot more complicated, and it'll, you know, you lose those reps early, it'll, you know, it'll slow down your development. So yeah, and it's a lot of it is um, his floor in a sense is high because if he can't handle shortstop, uh, from what I understand he could always fall back to center field, which is still a, and be a, be a good defensive center fielder, or he seems like he would. So it's nice to have fallback options, uh, even if, and if he can stay at shortstop or center, he doesn't even need to hit that much. I mean, he looks like he's probably going to be an empty average type guy, but, you know, frankly, he's hit 300 at every single level in, in the minors. And if he does have those basketball skills, it could cover up for his lack of walks or his aggressive approach. But yeah, like you said, I mean, as a hitter, 
it's a reactive thing. Um, and this will be his first look at major league stuff, particularly major league off speed stuff. And until he's just had a chance to see it, you know, you can't really replicate that anywhere else. This is his only way to way to do it. And so he may take, uh, I hope they, I hope they're patient with him, uh, even though they're, they're desperately throwing whatever they can at this sinking ship to, to stay in the playoff race. So speaking of that playoff race, uh, where are you at spiritually through one start of the James Shields era? <laughs> uh, fortunately, fortunately, when he came in, I, they'd already been on such a, a breathtaking crash and burn sequence that it was just sort of, yeah, sure, just throw it on the pile, throw it on the pile of disaster. <laughs> because they started 23-10, and 10, and uh, with the win last night, they clawed back up to 30-30, and 30, so... You can imagine, uh, do some, some basic subtraction there and figure out what's been going on since 23 and 10. Uh, some of them have been, you know, these completely, they blew three leads against Kansas City in a row, uh, one of which was a six-run lead in the ninth with uh, David Robertson. Some of that's on Robin Ventura, some of that's on the bullpen, some of that's just on bad luck. But uh, they are really struggling. And uh, I, think, I think now the rotation looks, stabilized to an extent. Obviously, we'll see what Shields does, but with Lados BFA'd yesterday, Miguel Gonzalez turned in a great start. Uh, I'm hoping that if they can add a bat or two, they might be able to, to salvage this, but they, they punted their lead, and Cleveland, who I thought was better to begin with, is now has a, has a cushion. So Yeah, so like I was a, a Cleveland guy before the season, but I've really grown to like this rotation. You know, obviously, Sale is one of the best pitchers in baseball, and Quintana, at least, you know, uh, we so far has been just as good, and beyond him, you've got Verdon, who you know obviously I love, and um, you know Shields is not. I guess you don't expect Shields to to be like the 2010 James Shields or you know 2011 whenever he came in third in Cy Young voting. Um, you know that 240 inning monster that he once was. But I wrote about this last weekend when the trade happened. Like I don't see any reason not to expect him to be. Uh, an average to maybe slightly below average big league pitcher. It, it should be. It should be. And obviously anything can happen. And Rodon, I, I love him, but he does have a, you know, a bit of a volatile profile because it's, he just has this incredible stuff. And it's easy to forget that he had basically no time in the minors and, and he's still learning as he goes. Uh, so that, that is impressive. But uh, uh, yeah, Cleveland, I, I'm torn because coming into it, I thought the White Sox were, you know, one of four teams that, that could win the division, but, you know, by no means did they have any distinct advantage over any of the others. But since then, the Royals and the Indians have had so many key injuries that one would think, uh, you know, with Carrasco went down for a while, Brantley, we may not see much of him at all this year, Alex Gordon, Mike Moustakis, these are, you know, key players who have all gone down. And you would think that that would have been enough to, to give the White Sox an edge uh, if they were, you know, a comparable team heading in. Uh, but unfortunately, the White Sox depth was just so thin coming in that as soon as, you know, Melky Cabrera went away for uh, a family emergency for four days, and all of a sudden you look at this lineup and think, where is this offense coming from? <laughs> so it's, yeah, they're not out of the woods yet. Yeah, I, there's, been, there's been a lot of J.B. shock in this lineup. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, they were even running Rollins, bringing it back to Rollins, they were running Rollins out of DH for a while just to try to get anything to stick, but... That's not a great situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Jimmy Rollins as much as anybody, but a 37-year-old Rollins at DH is that's no good. Um, you brought up Robin Ventura, and I know that Robin Ventura has been 
uh, sort of a complicated issue for you uh, over the past year or so. And you know, <laughs> we, you know, are we've gone uh, in a couple different directions over the years on how we judge managers. And you know, there's like Medios just just won uh, the World right. Series, so. You know, we talk about bad tactical managers, but it's, it's less important than the other stuff he brings to the table. So, you know, I'm wondering right now is is Robin Ventura such a bad tactical manager that that outweighs other positive characteristics that you know you or the White Sox think uh, that he might bring to the clubhouse? Well, you know, I, I want to be careful because you know screaming for your manager to get fired is, is a good way to for people to be suspicious of your opinions, but, uh, you know, Ventura came in with no managerial experience at all when he was hired. The White Sox sort of sought him out and said, we want you. Um, tactically, he's, he's been poor from, from the get-go, and, and we've been told over and over again, well, you know, that's not, that's not what he's here to do. He's here to be a steady presence. The players like him, and, and it seems like the players genuinely do really like him just as a person to work with, and, and for anybody who's, you know, had a manager in any job that they really enjoyed, I think that we all know that that does matter. It's a nice thing to have. But unfortunately, they've lost, during this stretch where they've collapsed, they've lost a lot of one- and two-run games, and a lot of them can be, I think, directly traced to Ventura. I mean, just for example, um, the last two games that they've had after a day off, so they have their full bullpen fresh, they've been in very close games and blown leads, and he's used the back of the bullpen in very high-leverage situations, despite having you know all hands on deck. Um, I just think it's been enough years now that if it were up to me, I, I, I think the burden is, say, is on Ventura to, to demonstrate, you know, what are you bringing to the table? Uh, over the offseason, they did fire Mark Parent, who was his bench coach, uh, his hand-picked bench coach of the last, uh, since 2012, and replaced him with Rick Renteria, you know, who's a guy who does have managerial experience, and I think was was pretty well regarded uh, with his year with the Cubs. He was only replaced because they got, you know, Joe Madden, not because I, I don't think because he was doing a poor job. So they do have someone available. And, and at a certain point, I think even just as a signal to, to the fans and players that something has to change. I mean, sometimes it's just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, but there is a competent guy here. And I just don't know what Ventura is adding at this point. Um, they've just, they've been collapsing for so many weeks in a row now. Yeah, I find the the White Sox are really interesting right now because they're like a you know they're an okay team they're you know maybe a 500 team that the front office is just trying really hard to white knuckle over the line. <laughs> like, you know they're they're pretty good, but you know they're just you know Rick Hahn and and his his guys are like no we're we're just going to make this happen despite you know, having a few good you know pieces plus Chris Sale uh, obviously who's is awesome. Um, you know, it, but like a move like a Shields trade or maybe firing the manager or promoting Tim Anderson, like you don't need to make the blockbuster trade if you can make enough of those smaller moves. And I think the White Sox are in a position where enough small moves will get them at least to the point where they're competitive in September. Yeah, this, this offseason was really frustrating because they were, they, they added Frazier and Laurie um, and, now with those acquisitions, you can see a pretty clear window of this year and next year that they're aiming for, where they have a lot of pieces sort of in their late twenties, uh, in their prime, you know, Adam Eaton and Quintana behind sale and Abreu and all that. Uh, but then they stopped short. They didn't sign any of the big free agents that were at positions of need or even the modest free agents, you know, Dexter Fowler on this team would have made a huge difference. Um, 
So it's it's this odd, like you said, this white knuckle win now urgency, but paired with this sort of passiveness as well that seems to keep them in in limbo, unfortunately. But there are holes on this roster that are that are bad enough that you wouldn't need to make a huge you know a huge addition to make a make a significant improvement. Uh, my my colleague Ethan Spalding has compared this team to the 2015 Mets in the sense that if you shore up if you replace the Eric Campbells on this roster with the Juan Uribe's and Kelly Johnson's of the world, you can actually see a real improvement before you, not just adding the, uh, the Cespedes type impact that could, could move the needle a little bit, but you know, guys like uh, Josh Reddick, who would have been a great fit, unfortunately got hurt. So there's just been some bad luck there too. Have you been paying the, uh, attention to the draft at all, at least through the first day? Um, Cause the White Sox have made a couple interesting picks that I think could, could pan out in the short term. Um, but yeah, I know not everybody uh, pays all that close attention to the draft and prospects and stuff. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I was I was paying closer and closer attention as it came up, and you know they added uh, Zach Collins, uh, Zach Birdie, and uh, Alec Hansen in last night's draft. Um, and I thought I thought it was a really interesting trio. Um, they were apparently looking at, uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, is it Lauer? Uh, Lure, Lauer? He was heavily linked to them. So I don't know if Birdie was a fallback, uh, was, you know, plan B. But Collins is, uh, you know, people people giving him a Schwarber comp because they think he's not going to be, they, he might be slightly under slot and he's not going to. I don't either. I think that that's too much. But there is, we've seen uh, polished college bats with really good approach and not a ton of positional value. Uh, do well uh, out of the draft lately. I mean, Conforto is a guy like that. I don't know if Collins is that good, but it is. He does fill. Um, there was nobody else like that in the organization uh, before last night. And Birdie and Hanson apparently, uh, Baseball America had them as two of the top three arsenals as pitchers coming into this draft behind Riley Pint. Um, but obviously, there's there's more to it than just that. Otherwise, they would have gone higher because uh, yeah. Birdie's probably a, almost certainly a reliever, and Hanson went from a guy who was, I think they were, he was being talked about at 1-1 uh, yeah, about six months Hansen ago. Yeah, was supposed to go 1-1, and then, or if not 1-1, then close to it, but then he just showed up at school this year and forgot how to throw strikes. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. And, yeah, and he's an interesting pick because the White Sox had this reputation um, of developing pitchers, and so, you know, if he's, if they can get him back to something close that he was, like his sophomore year at Oklahoma, then that's a huge steal at uh, you know in the late forties. Yeah. Um, but I think the really interesting one for them this year is Birdie, who you know he's a, a guy who could come up um, and be a really effective reliever. You know, maybe the end of the season. I think Zach Collins too uh, is advanced enough as a, a catcher that he could be the first um, first position player from this draft to, to make the big leaps. And that's and I think that's why this draft is kind of cool for the White Sox is because it's, it's really difficult to draft to win now. You know, you can't, you can't really do that in baseball, but the White Sox do have some guys, you know, at least Birdie will come up, you know, if they're in it, Birdie could come up, you know, August, September, and, um, and Collins should be up relatively early next year. And it, like, these are guys who can help them in the short term, but I, I think they got them without really compromising their, uh, the success of the draft in the long term. So I think it's just a good, a good first day, full stop. But it, part of why it's a good first day is, is those guys can be up relatively soon. 
I, I definitely defer to you. I know you watch a lot more college baseball than, than I certainly do, uh, but that, that matches what I've read about them, um, and it matches my perception. Uh, you know, it, it's the difference between having these three picks in the top 50. This is something the White Sox haven't had in a long time. Uh, they haven't had a lot of uh, draft picks available due to signings or, and, and so on. Um, and it's really, it's really nice being able to take Alec Hansen at 49 and say, well, you know, if he doesn't pan out, he was our, you know, the third guy we took, as opposed to if you give up your first round pick, maybe that, maybe that's your first go. Maybe that's your, you know, the White Sox have had drafts and, you know, the Orioles have had drafts like that too, where you don't get to pick until the forties and then taking a high risk guy like that, doesn't look as nice, but the safe options there obviously are, are also unlikely to be an impact. So it was a it was a good position to be in, and I think, like you said, Collins and Birdie seem to be high floor, high probability type guys, and uh, that that pairs nicely with a a total you know lotto ticket like Hanson. Yeah, and I liked um, I just saw before we started recording that they took uh, another guy like Alex Call, who's an outfielder out of Ball State. Uh, in the third round, um, he was hitting at some point this year. He was hitting like 400, 500, 700 in the max. So he was one of my my Midwestern sleepers. Um, so yeah, I, I really like what they've. I think it's it, it's a good draft, but I also think it's it's a great right. draft what they've what they've done. Um, but yeah, whether that works out or whether Tim Anderson works out or DFAing Rollins or the Shields trade, you know, we all that remains to be seen. And uh, you know. When we have more answers, we'll we'll bring you back on. So uh, thanks for for coming on, Nick. My absolute pleasure. Happy to happy to come back anytime. And uh, you can find Nick's work at BP Southside, and uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Nick underscore BPSS. Now joining us on the line is a writer and editor for Baseball Prospectus, uh, the co-host of the Gleeman and the Geek podcast, and near as I can tell, the mayor of Minneapolis, Aaron Gleeman. Thanks for coming on, Aaron. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So I wanted to start by sort of setting up this whole twin season. They won 83 games last year. They had an exciting young crop of players. Now, I thought they had a pretty good chance at making the playoffs this year, and now they're 18-41, and 41. And I wanted to ask you, one, how did this happen? And two, how are people blaming this on Joe Maurer? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. The, the Twins' owner called it a total system failure, which I think is sort of uh, know, pretty accurate. I think what we what we learned is they probably were a little bit of a mirage last year. Not that they were amazing, but they were decent last year. Uh, they really didn't do anything during the offseason. The whole idea was, Hey, we won 83 last year with a young team. We got a whole bunch of other young prospects that we're ready to add, so that should help us improve. And instead, most of the veterans got worse. Most of the young guys they called up were not ready, and most of them have actually already been demoted back to the minors. And then uh, the funny thing is, uh, Joe Maurer is actually playing pretty decently, and yet because the team's bad and because he still – you know, the jerk that he is has not transformed into a, uh, you know, 60 homer a year hitter. He's still getting a lot of crap, but um, he's actually been good. There's only really like three or four bright spots on the whole team. And offensively, it's basically Maurer and Eduardo Nunez, who might end up being their all-star. I think, yeah, it was, um, it was, I certainly didn't expect to live in a world where Eduardo Nunez was the Twins' only all-star this year. 
like, you know, I grew up around Philadelphia sports talk and like people are angry there because it's kind of shitty there. But, you know, Minneapolis is beautiful. You got beautiful weather in the summer. You've got Carl Anthony Towns, you know, and you know, it's the land of meat raffles. And I just don't understand how everybody is this angry and cranky all the time at Joe Maurer in, you know, a city like Minneapolis. It's been a really weird, I think you're right, that generally the people of Minneapolis are not, we're a little passive-aggressive maybe, but it's not an angry city, I would say. But the, I would say particularly the newspaper columnists, it's not a great group, or at least a particularly empathetic group. But with Maurer, no state loves sort of one of our own, one of ours, more than Minnesota, and yet he's the hometown guy and is still hated. I think it's a little bit like... I don't know, Joey Votto seems to take a lot of crap in Cincinnati. I think it's more guys who are, uh, you know, great plate discipline, but power comes and goes, and obviously Votto has more power than Maurer. But, and I also think even when Maurer was fantastic as a catcher, there's the whole thing about, you know, the average person tuning in may not quite fully realize the value of first-base caliber offense at catcher, and so I think he sort of got undersold a little bit there. He had the big power breakout in the MVP season and then hasn't been able to duplicate that. And then there's been some injuries. Uh, I don't know. what I, Justin Morneau driving him in a billion times, won an MVP, and people, a lot of people thought, well, the guy with all the RBIs is more valuable than Maurer, which I think contributed to it. And then he's also just, he's a quiet guy. He's not a guy who's going to make a ton of, you know, great media allies through good quotes and all that. And then you toss in the big contract. And I think, I don't know, all that, I'm not quite sure where to place what percentage of the, of the blame, but all that led to it, I think. Yeah, so, you know, Maurer with his big contract uh, brings up that, you know, Irvin Santana and Phil Hughes and Ricky Nolasco have all had uh, fairly sizable contracts, and all of them are just terrible right now. You know, Hughes is, is even hurt. Um, and so how much of that is on the players for not living up to expectations? How much of that is – it's bad team building, and you know my inclination. And you know, feel free to disagree, but my inclination is to uh, say, like, these are not big contracts. These are like forty, fifty million dollar contracts, and a team that wants to be competitive ought to be able to get around them somehow, or you know, eat some money, or, or have temporary spending increases to to get over that. So, you know, I'm curious what your thoughts are on. You know, who's to blame for the, the Twins' financial situation? I mean, the players haven't been good, but I think they're so Ryan, their GM, and the, the organization top-down is so conservative, not only just with you know the actual spending, but just in terms of how they view you know, potential moves, potential trades, and that they their pitching was so bad from 2011, 2012, 2013, that I think they said, we're never going to, rightly or wrongly, we're never going to sign an ace starter in free agency, and we've completely been unable to develop high-end pitching. So let's just go out and give $50 million to Ricky Nolasco, Phil Hughes, Urban Santana. Before that was you know, Kevin Correa, Mike Pelfrey, just fourth or fifth starter veteran guys. And they're, small, they're relatively small contracts, like you said, but you add them up and they're you know, $175 to $200 million. And the bigger issue is that they're locked into – with Hughes and Alaska Santana, especially now, you're locked into three spots and 150 million 
to guys who are, you know, collectively have a five ERA. And now that they are actually developing some decent pitching prospects who are rising through the, through the minors, it's hard to give them spots just because they owe each of these guys, you know, 10, 12, 15 million a year for a couple more years. But I think the reason, you know, if they had signed one of those guys and just said, we need a, some stability in the rotation, everyone would have said, okay, that's a, a reasonable move. But doing three of them, uh, basically in a two-year span. And then the thing with Hughes was they signed him to a three-year, $24 million deal. He had a career year, and they immediately gave him a $42 million extension. And he's been terrible and now injured. Uh, he's on the DL now with a knee injury, but he's had back problems and shoulder problems. So uh, I think the Twins kind of put themselves in a bad spot because they're, they've been cheap and they've been unable to v- develop inexpensive talent. And so they kind of went in the mid-level there and they locked themselves into a a whole bunch of mediocre or worse pitching. So yeah, I'm I'm looking at the the Twins baseball reference page, and I don't think I think every single pitcher who started for them uh, this season has allowed ten or more hits per per nine innings, which is <laughs> certainly not a recipe for success. Um, yeah. And you said that they're conservative, and I think that manifests itself in an interesting way, which is that they seem to keep it in the family a lot more than. Uh, maybe more than any other franchise, certainly more than average. You know, Terry Ryan's been there forever. He, this is the second stint as general manager. Uh, their um, their manager right now is Paul Molitor, who's not only a Twins legend, he's a you know Minnesota uh, Minnesota sports legend dating back to his uh, days in college and high school. You know, it's I think the the interesting question is not whether you think they benefit from an outside voice, but what is it going to take to get them to recognize that? I mean, I think they could absolutely, I, I've been, I think for a decade they could have benefited because pretty much any changes they've made in the front office has been someone going away. Like William Krivsky was an example, was an assistant to Terry Ryan for a long time. He went to Cincinnati to be the GM and he got, was a flop there and he immediately came back to the twins. Uh, even right now, Ron Gardenhire had four 90 loss seasons in a row, got fired, uh, is already back in the organization within 18 months as a, you know, instructor in the minors. And he's back at target field, you know, shaking hands and taking pictures with everyone. Uh, that's sort of the big fear here is I think that they've been so bad for long enough now, five over the last six years have been terrible that people are starting to wonder if Terry Ryan might actually either step down or get fired. I don't think he'll ever get fired, but they think he might step down. But the problem then is, well, if he steps down and all they do is hand the the reins to his assistants, who have also been there for 10, 20 years, and the sort of overall structure of the organization doesn't change, well, then all you've done is just lost Taylor Ryan. And, you know, he hasn't been great, but I have more confidence in him still than his, you know, right-hand man. But, yeah, that's been a criticism. When they were going well, it was viewed as loyalty. Uh, now that they're not going so well, it's just viewed as, you know, uh, just conservative. They like who they like, whether it's players, whether it's people in the front office, many of whom started off in very low-level positions selling tickets or doing PR and have advanced to, you know, assistant roles. So, yeah, it's 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 hard for me to say it's all bad because uh, they've had success with it in the past. But at this point, it's very tough for me to look at the decision-makers and not, and not wonder – if they're capable of turning it around, not because they're not smart enough, but just because they're very stuck in their ways and it's the same, you know, group of five or ten people making all the decisions that it's been for so long. Yeah. So let's, you know, try to 
end it on a little bit more of an optimistic note. Um, you know, when we were, you know, or when I at least was um, more optimistic about the Twins before the season, you know, I thought that they were going to win on the strength of uh, that class of players who came up at the end of last year. You know, not only Miguel Sano, but Byron Buxton, uh, Max Kepler, Jose Barrios, and, you know, below them, you know, you've got uh, top 10 picks like Cole Stewart and Tyler Jay, who I saw a lot uh, when he was at Illinois. You know, I love his athleticism. He's got a great slider. Um, you know, I thought the Twins made a great pick with him. You know, but that first that first wave, that Bucks and Sano, uh, Barrios wave sort of struggled early on. So I'm curious where you're at with them. You know, is it, you know, probably too early to, to start giving giving up, but, you know, are you adjusting expectations? You know, is it is it starting to get frustrating that those guys haven't become the kind of major league contributors that uh, everybody expected them to be right off the bat? I'm not I'm not worried, but I do think, you know, I've tried to. All I do all day now is just sit on Twitter and try to convince people not to give up on Byron Buxton and to a lesser extent the other guys you mentioned. I'm not worried about them. I, I do think it's fair to, you know, lower their projected upsides a little bit, uh, at least in the short term. But I still think that group is going to be fantastic. I think there's no way Sano is not a middle-of-the-order slugger for 10 years and there's no way that Buxton is not a, a plus-plus defender with at least a decent bat, and I like Kepler a lot. Barrios, I think, if he gets his control settled, can be really good. Tyler, they have you know, one of the best farm systems in addition to some young major leaguers that are still really good, but the, the question or the mistake people kind of learn is that you can't assume that six different second-year guys and rookie guys are all going to thrive at the same time and you can't assume that's going to propel you sort of the next cycle in the in the winning phase. And, you know, whether it's with prospects or young major leaguers, half the time they fail, especially in a given year. Uh, I still have confidence in that group, but the, the issue I think Minnesotans are sort of trying to wrap their heads around are if that group is merely good rather than great, uh, is the front office capable of kind of supplementing that with veteran guys and free agency and trades and pickups, and that's where the lack of confidence comes from. If that if that group, you know, if Buxton is a you know Gold Glove center fielder who hits like a middle of the order guy, and Sano's hitting forty bombs a year, and some of the other guys we mentioned reach their absolute peak, well, the team can't help but be good uh, and maybe even great. But the question I think is, if a couple of those guys don't really pan out, is there enough innovation, enough spending, enough you know risk taking? to supplement the rest of the roster. And that's, I don't know, that's where my big question. All right. Well, you know, I hope it gets better. You know, it's a sort of a long suffering group of fans, uh, you know, and I'd like to see them at least make a run. You know, it's a fun team, you know, great ballpark, great fans. So, you know, I hope that, you know, you guys return to, or the twins return to contention sometime soon. Uh, you can find Aaron's work at baseball prospectus. Uh, you can, uh, Subscribe to the Gleeman and the Beat podcast, uh, and you can follow him on Twitter at Aaron Gleeman. Aaron, thanks, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Ringer MLB Show. I'm Michael Bauman, and we'll see you next week. 